Good morning, everybody. I'm not Father Matt. Uh, Father Matt is in Texas uh, at the Society of St. James uh, Synod. So uh, like-minded priests from all over, I think, I think it might be the world, uh, have come together to, uh, to preserve the Orthodox faith, uh, to encourage one another. Uh, we have a great priest, and, but, but even great ones need rest. And uh, I just pray that Matt, Father Matt gets some rest uh, and, and comes back refreshed. Uh, this morning, we again hear the voice of James, kinsman of our Lord and leader of the church in Jerusalem. James wrote his letter from a tension-filled place during a tension-filled time. Did you know that Jerusalem translates city of peace? But Jerusalem had not really known peace since the days of King David and King Solomon. Since the time of the United Monarchy, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and now the Romans had all conquered Jerusalem and subjugated its people. When James wrote his letter to the church, there was tremendous tension between Jews and Romans. Jewish inhabitants of Judea perceived the Roman occupation to be oppressive in just about any uh, way possible. Militarily, economically, politically, culturally, religiously oppressive. And revolt was constantly simmering beneath the surface. Ideals like turning the other cheek or going two miles when a Roman soldier compelled you to carry his things for one mile would have been very, very hard for the average Jew to swallow. There was also the ubiquitous tension between the rich and the poor. In first century Palestine, there were rich landowners who lived comfortably. There were artisans, farmers, and fishermen who lived modestly. And there were many, many people who struggled day by day to earn their daily bread as a tenant farmer, a day laborer, or the like. Stories about landlords and tenants and hired servants would have resonated deeply with most Jews. James was writing to Christians who were surrounded by and perhaps even consumed by dissatisfaction, restlessness, frustration, bitterness, anger, and even hatred for their fellow man. These were people who had been exploited, humiliated, and oppressed for centuries, yet they just wanted the same things that all people do. They wanted peace. They wanted fulfillment. They wanted a sense of well-being. In today's lesson, James gives them and us wisdom from above on how to be content. Many of his words would have been hard for his readers to hear, but they were and are powerful medicine for a restless soul. Do you have a restless soul? James' words are for you. James' words are for me. 
James begins by warning, uh, warning his readers about a worldly wisdom that promises to bring contentment, but really produces, as he says, confusion and every evil work. James 3, 14 through 16 says again, But if ye have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion in every evil work. Did you know that the word translated envy in this passage is also translated zeal in other passages of Scripture? Think about when Jesus cleanses the temple and his disciples are reminded of Psalm 69, 9, which says, Zeal for your house will consume me. James is not speaking against this kind of zeal. He's speaking against what he calls bitter zeal. It was bitter zeal that uh, motivated by selfish ambition and valued by groups like the zealots who wanted to kill the Romans and take by force the things that their hearts desire. James is speaking against that kind of zeal. James says this approach to contentment is earthly, sensual, devilish. And as he said earlier in his letter, the wrath of man does not work the righteousness of God. Yet there is a subtler form of bitter envying that infects the soul and manifests itself in the idea that contentment can be had by striving. Striving to get more of the things of this world, like time, money, or acclaim. Striving to get different things than the ones we already have, like a different job, a different house, a different spouse. The overwhelming testimony of human experience tells us that striving does not bring contentment. Consider the life of the 19th century French short story author Maupassant. Maupassant was a creative genius and outrageously successful by any worldly standard. He lived a life of affluence, owning a yacht in the Mediterranean, a large home on the Norman coast, a luxurious flat in Paris. He had unparalleled fame. It was said that critics praised him, the men admired him, and the women worshipped him. Maupassant was the envy of the people of his day. But at the height of his career, he went insane. He tried to commit suicide and spent the last months of his life in anguish, muttering unintelligible things to himself in an empty room. Maupassant died at the age of 42, and after his death they found his diary, and the last sentence he had written in it became the epitaph of his life. He wrote, I have coveted everything, taken pleasure in nothing. In the book of Ecclesiastes, the teacher sums up the experiences of ambitious men and women throughout history when he says that he explored all manner of intellectual pursuits, he embraced all manner of pleasure, he undertook great projects, he amassed incredible material wealth, he gained power and fame, in the end, he concluded that all of it was meaningless, 
meaningless. He said it was a chasing after the wind. Getting more things of this world does not bring contentment. But some have reasoned, if getting is not the answer, then giving must be. And they try to find contentment in doing good for others. Of course, acts of service and charity and justice are incredibly good things. God calls us to them. We ought to engage in them. But those who care for others in order to satisfy the deep longings of their heart will eventually become disappointed by the fact that some people don't want to be helped. In the end, losing oneself and the people and the causes of this world is also a chasing after the wind. C.S. Lewis summed it up this way. Most people, if they really learned how to look into their own heart, would know that they do want, and want acutely, something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but none of them ever keep their promise. In today's lesson, James says, there is something that does. He says there is a heavenly wisdom that will produce the fruit of contentment in our hearts if it is received with humility. And James begins to impart this wisdom to us by taking an account of the present discontentment of his age. James 4, 1 through 3 reads, From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence, even of your own lusts that war in your members? Ye lust and have not. Ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lusts. James begins with the obvious. He says, You're not content. You lust you do not have. He goes on to say, not only do you not have what you want, but you can't even get what you want because you're pursuing it the wrong way. You desire to have and cannot obtain. James is saying, you're striving according to the wisdom of this world. You're thinking that things of this world will satisfy the desires of your heart and all that is coming of it is disorder and every evil practice. James then begins to sort out things further. He says, some of you don't know or refuse to accept that contentment is found only in God. He says, ye have not because ye ask not. But he says, others of you come to God, but you ask him for the wrong things for the wrong reasons. He says, deep down, you still think that contentment can be found in the things of this world, and what you want is for God to give them to you. He says, he ask and receive not, because he ask amiss, that you may consume it upon your lusts. What James is doing here is he's working like a skilled physician to treat a disease. He has described the symptoms. 
And now what he's going to do is begin to diagnose the cause. So what James does next is he returns to the idea of double-mindedness. He introduced the idea of double-mindedness at the beginning of his letter, but what he's going to do is intensify this idea with what we might think is some shocking imagery. Here he goes. He says, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Do you think that the scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? But he giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud and giveth grace unto the humble. So what's James done here? Dr. James has taken out a scalpel and made an incision that cuts right to the heart of the matter. James says, the reason you lack contentment is you have adulterous hearts. To the modern ear, this may sound really, really harsh, but this is exactly the kind of language that God used to describe Israel's unfaithfulness to him under the Old Covenant. And James is simply appropriating the same language to describe our unfaithfulness to God under the New Covenant. It's a metaphorical way of saying you're double-minded. Your soul is divided. You have two supreme loves in your life when you should only have one. You want to love the world and God. And this is impossible. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. The fourth century church father, St. Augustine, wrote some very profound things about how our state of contentment is affected by what we love. He said, what makes us who we are is not so much what we believe or what we think or what we do as much as it is what we love the most. He said that discontentment enters the human heart when our loves get out of order. When we love the things we should love most least and the things we should love least most. So, for example, if we love our career more than we love our families, we'll destroy our families. There's nothing wrong with loving our careers, but not out of order. If we love our families more than we love God, our hearts will be continually broken because we're looking to creatures to fill a place in our hearts that was designed for our Creator. It's good to love our families but not out of order. St. Augustine, if you read about his life, was a passionate, ambitious man who struggled with contentment. But when he finally surrendered to the will of God, he wrote this, Our hearts are restless, O Lord, until they find rest in you. St. James and St. Augustine are just both saying what Jesus said when he was asked by an expert in the law, which commandment in the law is the greatest? Jesus replied, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Why do commandments 9 and 10 about coveting come after the first commandment, which is to have no other gods before me? 
because the latter can't happen before the former. Discontentment is the result of not loving God more than everything else in our lives. But then we get to this little section that's kind of confusing. What does James mean by the spirit that dwelleth within us lusteth to envy, but he giveth more grace? What is that about? That section is a little tricky because it's been translated in more than one way. If we stick with the King's James Version, and why wouldn't we? I mean, we're doing a study of the book of James. The passage seems to say that though our natural inclination is to lust after the world and be unfaithful to God, God's grace is greater than that tendency. And we can find contentment by submitting our lives to him. And that interpretation is perfectly consonant with the spirit of the letter. It is interesting, though, that other translations read more like this. He, God, jealously longs for the spirit that he has caused to dwell in us. That seems my, that might seem a little odd because jealousy is not an attribute that many would readily ascribe to God. But in Exodus 24 and 5, God says that he is jealous for the worship of his people. We know that God regularly uses marriage imagery to describe our relationship with him. And it should not surprise us that like a faithfully jealous husband, he will not enable our affair with the world. James says that because God is the giver of only good and perfect gifts, he will no more give us the things of the world to use as ends in themselves than a husband would give $50 to his wife for an evening out on the town with her lover. God resisteth the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Having described the symptoms and diagnosed the disease, the good doctor now prescribes the cure. James says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. James tells us that contentment is found in God alone. Now, why would that be? I mean, some of us need to kind of think this through. Well, we were made in the image of God. And since God is love, we were made to participate in the loving relationship that has existed between the Father and the Son and the Spirit for all eternity. As a matter of fact, Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, God has set eternity in the human heart. He's put it there. We have a desire. I would say it more strongly. We have a need to love God built right into the core of our being. And so as Augustine said, it is only the love of the immutable God that can bring tranquility. So what ought we to do? James tells us how to proceed. He says, we need to start by repenting of unfaithfulness to God. He says, cleanse your hearts, ye sinners. Purify your hearts, ye double-minded. 
when we have the opportunity to pray the penitential order, we're doing just that. We say, we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry, and we humbly repent. When we repent, we need to change our thinking. We need to actively resist the earthly, sensual, devilish wisdom of the world and receive with meekness the wisdom that comes from above. Our mind has to be renewed day by day. Finally, we need to draw near to God and spend single-minded time with him. What is that like, single-mindedness with God? Have you ever said to someone you love, hey, I don't really care what we do today as long as we spend time together? That's single-mindedness. That is what Paul was expressing when he wrote, I count all things but loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. Single-mindedness towards God. Five minutes of single-mindedness towards God. Where nothing matters but more of him. Brothers and sisters, draw near to the Lord. Truly, to know him is to love him. Nothing will bring order to our loves like daily approaching the Lord with singleness of heart, wanting nothing more than more of him. Trust that the Lord knows what you need and will supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Thank the Lord for all the things he has given you beyond your needs. Follow the Lord day by day, taking the next step he places in front of you by faith. And let patience have its perfect work in you, so that like Paul, we can say, I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.